0: Welcome to Policy PolicyCast, episode 52 for January 18th, 2019. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute.
1: In all of these cases, we have reached a point where members of Congress are questioning whether or not the U.S.-Saudi relationship, as they understand it, is actually in the U.S. interest or whether actions of the Saudi government actually make us less safe and make the region less stable.
0: That was Dana Stroll, the Washington Institute's newest senior fellow and a veteran Pentagon and Senate Foreign Relations Committee staffer. Dana spoke with Institute Media Relations Associate Erica Nagley about Capitol Hill's role in foreign policy, from the fraying bipartisan consensus on Middle East issues to conflicts between the legislative and executive branches that transcend administrations. We'll hear Dana's full conversation with Erica after this. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute.
2: In general, what was the SFRC's role, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee's role in foreign policymaking? So
1: the Senate Foreign Relations Committee has a a specific jurisdictional responsibility, and that is oversight of U.S. foreign policy broadly and specifically oversight of the U.S. uh, Department of State and the U.S. Agency for International Development. So what that means on a day-to-day basis as a senior staffer is every day is different, every day is a new adventure, which is great. Some of the things that you do as a staffer on the committee If your boss wants to have hearings on a particular subject and it's in your portfolio, so for me, that was anything related to the Middle East, anything related to North Africa plus Turkey. If there was a hearing, then it was my job to work on organizing the hearing, designing the scope of the hearing, helping prepare my boss to give an opening statement, ask questions, understand the context of the hearing. Um... If it was administration witnesses, that's one thing. Administration witnesses means from the Department of State, Department of Defense, Department of Treasury, etc. Sometimes we were inviting outside experts, like scholars from the Washington Institute. That is one set of uh, tasks that a senior staffer does. Any foreign leader that comes to the F- Senate Foreign Relations Committee, if it's in my portfolio, so a king, a prime minister. Um, a crown prince, a deputy crown prince, a foreign minister, we have a ceremonial room in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the U.S. Capitol, and we would participate in those meetings and help prepare our bosses for those meetings. If our bosses want to travel to the region, if we as staff want to lead delegations to the region. So those are some of the big high-profile things that you do. If your boss is going to be on TV talking about the region, if your boss wants to give a speech on the region, if your boss has private meetings on the region. So those are the big things you you do supporting your boss. And then there's other issues that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee works on on a daily basis. One of those is approving any kind of assistance. So if the State Department or the U.S. Agency for International Development wants to obligate refugee assistance, economic assistance, military aid, etc., they can't just do it without coming first to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and our sister committee on the House side, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and seeking um, proactive congressional approval of that money. Same thing for weapon sales. So any weapon sales above a certain dollar value to any country in the Middle East would first come to me and some of my colleagues on the committee. Um, And then in general, the other job of staff on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is we are the people's branch of government. So anybody that wants a meeting with us, whether you're a diplomat from a foreign embassy, you're from the advocacy community, you're from a citizen group, you're a lobbyist, you're a human rights advocate, maybe you're a political dissident, Maybe you want to alert us to something going on in the energy field, um, in the trafficking um, in persons field, modern slavery. Any of those issues, if you want a meeting, you can have a meeting with the relevant staffer from the committee. So that kept me pretty busy.
2: Yeah, no kidding. Was it stressful? Did you kind of get used to the stress? I mean, at the same time, you were starting a family and... I couldn't imagine. Like, how many hours a week were you working?
1: That's a good question. I never counted the hours of in the week that I was working. And just like here um, at the Washington Institute, they give you a laptop so you can go home and be with your family and get online later if you need to keep working or need to keep writing later. It was stressful. It was also really exciting, because no matter how you envisioned when you got to the office in the morning what your day may or may not look like, it could all change on a dime, whether uh, something happened in the region, whether a foreign leader gave a speech that shifted everything you thought about a certain policy issue. Maybe it was a statement here in Washington, D.C. Maybe it was a tweet from the president that changes everything, and you have to spend your day reacting. Maybe your boss woke up one morning and said, I saw this News report on CNN, and now I want to give a speech. And all of a sudden, you thought you were going to be working on something else, and you start writing a speech. So part of being a staffer on the Hill is being up for the adventure and being flexible enough to to react to whatever the firestorm of the day is.
2: So how many other people kind of had your same position? Did you have a team working with you? Were you working alone? This is a
1: really good question. So when now former Secretary of State John Kerry was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the job was actually split between two senior staffers who were both the Middle East, North Africa staffers. When Senator Menendez took over in 2013 and became the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, they reduced that that team to just one person. So it was me... Sometimes I had a legislative aide working with me who was absolutely fabulous and my partner in crime. And then one of the other ways that committees like the Senate Foreign Relations Committee who are very busy function is through fellowships. So if you are a civilian or a foreign service officer in the State Department or the Defense Department or from our intelligence community, you can seek out a professional development year by doing a fellowship on the Hill, and we benefit from your expertise and your know-how and you contribute to the work. So at various times over the years that I was working on the Hill, I had supplemental support from, from different fellows.
2: When did you feel like you were making the most kind of impact in terms of charting the direction of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East? So taking
1: a step back, I think in general, the way our system of government is organized is the executive branch has primacy in the making of foreign policy. But clearly, Congress can, through legislation, through appropriations, through various public signaling, make a difference in very specific cases on the trajectory. So one of the most rewarding experiences I found is is helping constituents. So for example, if somebody was stranded in a country if um, either a political dissident or even an American at times was wrongfully detained or jailed, and advocacy, tweeting, speeches, engaging on that specific individual's case or meeting with the family could make a difference. Those were exceptionally meaningful opportunities for me during my time there.
2: What was kind of your best day on the job, just as an encapsulation of, of what made you want to keep going? Sure. So as a
1: senior staffer working on the Hill, and the Hill's primary job, of course, is to pass legislation. So the best day would be when you see a piece of legislation become law. Um, For me, one of the most... There were probably two exceptionally rewarding experiences like that. The first one was... In 2015, when the Obama administration was negotiating the Iran nuclear agreement, and there was much consternation in Congress about the executive negotiating that agreement without Congress weighing weighing in on the scope and the parameters of that agreement. Many members of Congress have been involved in passing successive pieces of legislation, tightening the sanctions on Iran, that enabled the Obama administration to be in a position to negotiate the Iran nuclear agreement and felt they wanted to say. So at the time, there was a bill called the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, ANARA, which basically said to the administration, you can continue your negotiations, but this agreement cannot be implemented until Congress speaks on it one way or the other. To watch the um, policy and the politics Build up to a point where there was bipartisan, bicameral agreement that this bill should become law was quite an experience. And actually, that was when I was pregnant for the first time. And so I was doing, I don't know, I would say 10 public hearings, 12 classified briefings, all about the negotiations leading up to the Iran nuclear agreement and then negotiating on this piece of legislation. And it ultimately did become law, and members of Congress did have a vote, and we all know how that ended up, which is uh, that the Iran nuclear agreement did go into implementation. And then the second one would be um, last year in 2017, the Countering American Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, CATSA, another example where there were various communities within on Capitol Hill and outside who were focused on Iran sanctions and tightening sanctions on Iran, not related to its nuclear um, history, but related to its support for terrorism, to its ongoing ballistic missile program, its human rights abuses, etc. There were also communities very committed to tightening sanctions on Russia for its interference in our 2016 elections. And finally, there was interest in North Korea sanctions. And to see all of that come together, and again, a bipartisan moment where Republicans and Democrats agreed that more sanctions were necessary at this point in time and that Congress was going to lead the way, that there was consensus between the House of Representatives and the Senate that we were going to do this, to negotiate and be part of the negotiations for all these different pieces of legislation coming together into one bill and watching the vote take place on the floor of the Senate was a really rewarding experience for me.
2: Do you find that it's often that Middle East legislation has kind of bipartisan approval? Do you think Middle East policy itself is a bipartisan issue? So I think Middle East policy is a very broad
1: term, and at times various elements within what we refer to as Middle East policy have had bipartisan, bicameral consensus. So there are two areas in particular I would highlight that I think are at risk of losing that bipartisan support. One is actually Israel, um, which is near and dear to my heart and watching some of the bipartisan consensus erode for various reasons on that. And there's a lot of discussion, as, as many of the listeners will note, on how to rebuild that bipartisan center, um, because Israel is strongest and the U.S.-Israel relationship is strongest when there is bipartisan consensus on the strategic importance of this partnership and strong, warm friendship. And number two is Iran. Unfortunately, I think we're at a stage where, because of the manner of the Iran nuclear deal being implemented and then the manner of the withdrawal in the current administration from the Iran nuclear agreement, has very much eroded the bipartisan consensus that Iran and its malign interference, and its pursuit in the past of nuclear weapons, plus the support for terrorism now is something that we need to maintain bipartisan focus on on the Hill and avoid letting politics seep into it. And that's an area where I think there are a lot of people working to rebuild that bipartisan center, but it's going to be a tough slog.
2: Yeah, and and even sometimes there's a lack of bicameral consensus as well. I remember one of the only issues that Congress actually overrode President Obama's um, veto was that bill about... The Justice Against Sponsors... JASTA. JASTA. Exactly. Yes. Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism <laughs> Act for our lovely listeners.
1: So we are at a unique moment in the U.S.-Saudi relationship. The JASTA bill, which passed at the end of the 114th Congress, which was the end of 2016, was a bill that would enable the families of the victims of the September 11th attacks to sue governments that they deemed to be responsible or liable for supporting or contributing to or being aware of the attacks before they happened. And in particular, everyone understood that the JASTA bill would enable American citizens to sue the government of Saudi Arabia in U.S. courts. The Saudi Arabian government was obviously very concerned about this bill, and this was a unique moment where the Obama administration very much opposed passage of this bill for, for many reasons, and in the end... It did pass both houses of Congress, and as Erica mentions, the Senate overrode his veto. What I think the JASTA experience laid bare on Capitol Hill is that if members of Congress have to pick between their constituents and this feeling of justice has not been served on 9-11 versus the argument for the strategic necessity of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, members of Congress did not did not put as much weight on the argument about what the United States derives from its relationship with Saudi Arabia. And that that gap, that consternation has continued to this day. And you see this in the successive votes by members of Congress against weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, various pieces, pieces of legislation and debates about U.S. support for the Saudi-led coalition and its operations in Yemen, and now most recently with the murder in the, at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. In all of these cases, we have reached a point where members of Congress are questioning whether or not the U.S.-Saudi relationship, as they understand it, is actually in the U.S. interest, or whether actions of the Saudi government actually make us less safe and make the region less stable.
2: What do you think of the argument that it is superseding diplomats and State Department officials who seek to get things done, who want to see Saudi Arabia improve in certain ways through carrots rather than sticks? I mean, there's there's a definite argument to be made on both sides, I, I think. So first
1: of all, I think that what members of Congress are doing is illuminating a debate. And it is always okay for members of Congress to force a debate. And I think it is important and in the interest of both U.S. foreign policy, our democracy here, and American citizens and their stake and understanding of U.S. foreign policy to see that debate happen in a transparent and public way. So I think it's okay to have the debate. And legislation that forces the debate should not be blocked. That being said, in the particular case of Jamal Khashoggi's murder, there is a perception that the current administration has not pushed for accountability and a transparent investigation in a meaningful way. And that concern is clearly stark enough that Republicans and Democrats have joined hands on this issue. And you see that less and less on Capitol Hill at this point. So I think when Republicans and Democrats come together, when you have when you have both sides of the aisle, both chambers of Congress working together on issues like that, that's when an executive branch, Democratic or Republican, needs to raise your eyebrows and say, okay, something's going on here. What does it mean? And Carrots or sticks, in general, U.S. policy is most effective when the carrots and sticks are integrated in a coherent way. So as the executive branch, what can we use from this leverage that Congress is giving us when there's clearly bipartisan concern about an issue? How can we get the relationship or get a specific issue on a better track? And you certainly saw Secretary of State Mike Pompeo during his trip to the region this week raised these issues in a public manner. And part of that is because I think he knew that he could not come back to Washington and could not testify to Congress, to either the Republican side or the Democratic side, without saying that he raised very serious concerns about the actual events of Mr. Khashoggi's murder, but also the future course of the Saudi-led investigation.
2: Can you just talk a little bit about... What you kind of expected your first day to be like going into working on the Hill, what were your expectations versus what was your experience, what was your reality, uh, what lessons did you learn, um, what surprises you encountered?
1: So my experience in the Department of Defense is that there is a um, very large but very clearly organized and structured hierarchy with a series of standard operating procedures for making decisions and a clear chain of command. You work for a boss who works for a boss who works for a boss who works for a boss. And one really good example of this is when I was at the Pentagon and I worked um, on Iraq or Egypt and the Secretary of Defense was doing an interview with a media outlet. Normally you knew days in advance and you studied whoever the interviewer was and you proposed questions that you thought the secretary could be asked, and then you proposed responses to the hypothetical questions, and then you brainstormed all the potential wild card questions that could happen, and then there were prep sessions with that secretary or whoever the other senior leader was to practice all the different possible curveballs that he or she could be thrown. So, What I didn't expect when I got to Capitol Hill was that the entire hierarchy within which I had previously existed was totally gone. In general, the way the Hill works is your communications director calls you and says, the senator is going to be on CNN in five minutes. What should he or she say about a certain issue? And so what it was a real learning experience for me to figure out that we were in a much flatter, much faster paced environment and that I was going to need to need to adapt to that. And another good example is when you work in the state department or the defense department, you know, usually days in advance when two senior leaders are going to have a phone call and you propose talking points and you make sure that your boss knows to ask certain questions or make certain points. And here it may be, hey, Prime Minister Netanyahu wants to call your boss and it'll be in about an hour. Maybe you have time to talk to your boss and maybe you don't. But what you do know is that when Prime Minister Netanyahu wants to talk to your boss, it's really, really important. And so adapting to a much more fluid environment where decision making happens much faster and you have much more consistent engagement. So Again, at the Pentagon, the Secretary of Defense may call the Undersecretary who calls the Assistant Secretary who calls the Deputy Assistant Secretary who tells you to write something and then you send it all the way back up the chain. Here, the Senator may just call you on your cell phone or maybe he or she sent you a text message. So you better have your phone with you and you better be prepared on whatever question could come up at any given point of the day to make sure that your boss is prepared and appropriately staffed to, to be the best that he or she can be.
2: You were just talking a lot about your senator or the secretary or the undersecretary kind of going to bat for a certain policy or for an issue in the media. And when I first came here, I was actually talking to you and you said, or I I was saying something about how I was interested in the intersection between media and policymaking, and if I remember correctly, you said that the media might have a little bit too much influence in policymaking. Do you mind talking a little bit about it? Um, what the influence of of the media in Middle East policymaking is?
1: Sure. In general, I think we're at a time now where there are so many sources of information coming at somebody on any given day, so people are looking at um, cable news networks, and and they are shaping what the dominant top lines are of the day. People are on Twitter, and at times it can be challenging to disaggregate what is meaningful and relevant and timely information from what may be intended to influence one way or the other. You are also receiving information um, from the executive branch you're receiving information from outside sources, from constituents, all different things. Um, and so I think in an environment where the 24 7 news cycle, you are constantly bombarded with all these different angles, all these different pieces of information, and news analysis. So people attempting to string it all together and tell you why a certain series of events or a specific development is meaningful versus what you know to be true, what you can take about what's happening today and put it in the context of what you know about the Middle East, about Middle East history, about Middle East policy, etc., and then what your boss cares about or your institution cares about or the U.S. government should care about or an American citizen, American voter should care about. And that is the challenge. So on the Hill, one of the, the... surprising things to me is how one news story or one big New York Times top of the fold story could totally influence the day. What questions your boss may get asked by a journalist in the hallway of the Capitol, um, what uh your boss may want to do in terms of a speech or writing a letter or talking to a foreign official. And a lot of it can be determined by what is read in the newspaper or what is picked up by a primetime news channel or what becomes uh, tweeted and retweeted and retweeted on Twitter. And I think that's all very important. and It does give you indicators of what you're going to focus on and what you should be focusing on and hard questions you should be asking. But sometimes I fear that people are so reactionary that they are missing the opportunities to step back and think about how what today's developments mean in the broader strategic context.
2: So do you have any tricks for how you kind of kept that, kept yourself sane with all those different streams of information? I'm sure any other person would have gotten completely overwhelmed and quit within the first three hours.
1: Well, no, there actually, there's tons of people uh, just like me who were attempting to stay calm and figure out exactly what your boss needed in any given hour or on any given day as a result of, of the constant um, pressure of the news cycle and everything else that we were attempting to do on a daily basis. I've been fortunate to work for some leaders that I've seen um operate in crisis environments and the most effective ones have been, have, have been um, remarkable in their ability to maintain calm, take a deep breath, figure out if there's an opportunity in a specific crisis and also whatever has happened. How do you understand what it is? How big of a deal is it really? And what do we need to do to either move forward and leverage the opportunity or clean up the mess? And in general, um, panic attacks or stressing out is not the most effective way. And so I have tried to emulate the really good models that I've been able to observe and, and try to maintain calm in, in those situations.
2: Thank you so much again, Dana. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: This has been Near East Policy Cast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at washingtoninstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers.